Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Well, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10, toward the end of Acts chapter 10 and into chapter 11. And this is part two of the two-part message about the gospel going beyond those from a Jewish background to Gentiles. Last time I told you that when you start in Acts chapter 10, verse 1, and you go to Acts chapter 11, verse 18, it's one continuous narrative of events. Uh, Narrative is the record of what happened. And it is the longest narrative in the book of Acts, so it's quite a few verses. And it covers the second most important event uh, in the book of Acts. I judge it that. That's, that's me speaking. Uh, after the day of Pentecost, because it's a second type of Pentecost. It's kind of the Gentile Pentecost, as we'll see in a little bit. And it's the conversion of Cornelius the Gentile. And we uh, could argue, many would, that the conversion of Paul was the second biggest event uh, in the book of Acts, if not the first. And that's okay if that's what you think. I just think as you talk about the ramifications of the Uh, things. This is such a key moment. And last week's message was called the magical mystery door. And we saw how God brought Peter and Cornelius together, uh, sometimes in pro wrestling. Oh, you're going to throw things at me. Uh, Sometimes in pro wrestling, they talk about the forbidden door. uh, And that means one company working with another company. Um, especially uh, one company here and one in Japan working together. You know, each, each wrestling promotion is supposed to view itself as the biggest and best, you know, and so they never work together. Well, in the last few years, they have started working together, in part so some of the smaller ones could survive. Um, and so they talk about the forbidden door. And obviously the magical mystery door uh, is a reference almost also a little bit to the Beatles had the song about the magical mystery tour and stuff. But there was this door that was closed shut between Jews and Gentiles. And even though they had gotten the gospel message to take to everyone, including the Gentiles, and there's many Old Testament passages that talk about God's love for the Gentiles and how this was not just for Jews but would get to Gentiles. Many of the prophecies in Isaiah say that. In other places, we know God's heart expressed for Gentiles or non-Jews. Gentiles are non-Jews. In the book of Jonah, uh, God saved so many in that generation in Nineveh, an evil, wicked generation. And he said, should I not be concerned about that great city? Um, And so the book of Acts, they were told to take the gospel. There were going to be witnesses in Jerusalem. That's the city they were in, Judea and Samaria, the country they were in, and next door, and then to the ends of the earth. And many chapters went by in the book of Acts before they did that. And so this message is called The Manifest Destiny of the Gospel and covers the incredible ramifications of the gospel going through that forbidden door, of going through that mystery door and going beyond Jews to Gentiles. And do you remember what I told you last week about where that phrase manifest destiny came from? Uh, Manifest destiny was the phrase used by American politicians and the people back in the 1830s 
because they looked at here we were along this eastern seaboard with great states like Virginia and North Carolina and all the way up to, uh, well, what's all the way up? Maine, right? And all the way down, you know. And they looked over and they saw there's an Atlantic Ocean over here. There's a Pacific Ocean way over yonder. And uh, it is just, it's got to be our destiny to go from sea to shining sea and fill in everything between. Um, that came as a surprise to Mexico, uh, and some of that's still getting worked out in our day and things, you know. Uh, but it did happen. It was a manifest destiny, and we're so thankful for these 48 lower states and the eventual inclusion also of other places like Alaska and Hawaii. But uh, there was a manifest destiny of the gospel, according to Jesus. Uh, Matthew 13, his great parable, right, of the, uh, uh, of the mustard seed. Mustard seed's a small little seed. It's one of the smallest they knew in Israel, but it grew up to be a big thing that even birds of all kinds could nest in. And he said, that's when it's what's going to happen with the gospel. It's going to start small. It's going to expand. Then in Matthew 28, he told uh, 11 disciples, Judas had departed, Probably up to 120 were around when he gave that instruction on Matthew 28. It says some were worshiping him, but others doubted. And he took that relatively small group and he said, go and make disciples of all the ethnos, all the nations. And uh, we've seen in Revelation 5 and Revelation 7, we're told there's going to be somebody from every people group. You know, So the mustard seed is going to grow. Matthew 28, all ethnos, it's guaranteed to grow. Acts 1.8 to the ends of the earth, right? There was a manifest destiny. The book of Acts shows that unfolding in a beautiful way. Uh, a manifest destiny of the gospel to go to all the earth. You know, it is hard to be pessimistic people when our Lord gave us such a wonderful vision like that. Amen? And to know that even though sometimes there's pockets of resistance and hard uh, ground in our area, the gospel has already circled the globe a time or two. Now, it still needs to get to some people groups. There's still people groups out there. Some of them are the hardest places to get on earth. But you know what? Some of those we get to, our missionaries report back to us, I found some believers already there. They heard about the Lord on the radio. They heard about the Lord in a vision. They went to the big city for work, and this kid got saved. He went back home, this 20-something that got saved in the big city, came back to his tribe, and he's been teaching them what he knows. And so it may have already happened, and we just don't know it. As far as we know, there's still several thousand people groups with nobody that believes. But Revelation 5 promises, Revelation 7 promises it happening again. Revelation 14, one more gospel call before Christ returns. Uh, you know, so it's really neat. And, and with that, we ought to be optimistic that uh, whether, you know, that uh, even when we're not seeing a big harvest around us, we can see a harvest again in America. You know, Paul Harvey used to say, in times like these, it helps to remember there have always been times like these. And so I, I was listening to a Christian um, radio commentator today, and he was kind of pessimistic, and he talked about how bad it is. And I'm not naive. Things are bad. You know, there's a lot that needs to happen, and it looks like, man, the Lord you know, is going to rapture us up out of here, and then all that tribulational stuff is going to happen. Uh, but the reason I say I I'm, I'm, you know, was a little sad that he was so pessimistic is... Uh, you know, America, after its founding, had a lot of uh, heathenism going on. Um, a lot of people rejected the faith. I mentioned Thomas Paine wrote Common Sense, but he also wrote, you know, that uh, he wrote against a church 
you know, he wrote that book. And as I mentioned a couple Sundays ago, um, Elias Boudinot wrote a book called The Age of Revelation, Countering the Age of Reason. He said the age of reason is shown to be an age of infidelity. And so even before we were a nation, there was a great awakening in the days of Jonathan Edwards. There was another one in later days. And I would say in the 70s and early 80s, uh, we had a 15 year or so revival in America uh, that was amazing. You know, Bill Bright, Billy Graham, uh, uh, the Jesus freaks out and, uh, you know, and many great things happened. And, um, you know, the 60s and 70s were a, a really atrocious time as far as morality goes. And there was this mini revival in the 80s that even led to some political conservatism happening and stuff like that. And uh, so, you know, uh, revival um, is something that God could give us at any time. Sometimes he gives it to a people praying to it for it. Sometimes he gives it because people aren't needed, you know. And so uh, we want to pray for that. But as... Uh, Acts 1 through 9 has shown the gospel saturating the Jewish and half-Jewish populations in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. As Acts 10 opened, about 10 years have passed since Acts 1-8. And so far, the gospel's not really gone much to the Gentiles. And so it's time to kick open that door. The Holy Spirit's going to kick open that mystery door. And Acts 10 is going to show Peter taking the gospel to the Gentile Cornelius under direct command. And because it was Peter that did it and the key role he had in the early church, it really expanded quickly after there. So Acts 10, verse 43 to 11, 18 is what I'm going to read. To him, to Jesus, all the prophets witness that through his name, through the name of Jesus, whoever believes in him will receive remission or forgiveness of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized to have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Now the apostles and brethren who were, who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, How could you, Peter? How could you, Peter? Verse 3, saying, You went to, into uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance I saw a vision, an object ascending like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners. And it came to me, when I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. So this is good. Peter's telling the story, and the six men are going, Mm-hmm, yep, that's what happened, you know. Um, so he said, These six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter. 
who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as they began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? Verse 18, when they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Golly! <laughs> and so the manifest destiny of the gospel. Well, at the end of Acts 10, your first fill in the blank is that the Gentiles day of Pentecost arrives. It was not the day of Pentecost, but you know what's saying. There's a parallel track running here. Everybody that experienced Acts 2 had a Jewish background, every single one of them. This is a complete Gentile thing, but there's also going to be this mass turning to Christ, these friends of Cornelius, these family members of Cornelius, and it is going to be just like what was observed on the day of Pentecost. And so the next thing we see is this breaks down in verses 43 to 48 as the wonderful message of the gospel, forgiveness for believers. So verse 43 says, To him all the prophets witness that through the name of Jesus, whoever believes in Jesus will receive forgiveness of sins or remission of sins. And I like how Luke makes it real simple for us. At the end of Luke 24, when he gives the great commission or Jesus' words there to the disciples, he basically said, "This you're going to preach everywhere and you're preaching to them about Jesus and how he can forgive sins of those who turn to him in faith. So when you become a believer, you're forgiven of your sins and it's a beautiful thing. There's hope for the world, not just the Jewish world, but all the world. We can know our sins are forgiven by faith in Jesus dying on the cross, atoning for your sins. Now, one time I was on a mission trip and I was on in West Africa and uh, we were having a great witness there. Some people in the village had trusted Christ. This is a 95% plus Muslim nation. And I was, as I was walking one day, I came across, another brother and I, we came across a circle of those sitting down. And it was a young Iman, that's a Muslim preacher, with his circle. And he actually wanted us to sit down and engage with them, and so we did. So I took my shoes off and sat down there. I didn't see if anybody was rising up to get me or anything. I don't think they were. It was a very cordial conversation and stuff. Uh, and, uh, but he uh, had never had some basic questions answered that were fairly easy to answer, you know. Um, so there's several things Muslims are taught and they think Christians have no answer for that. And I easily answered those. But I wanted to learn from them too and make them think also, you know. So it's good to ask questions when you're talking to people of another religion. And that's a real good way because sometimes as they explain things, you go, huh, so that's why y'all do that. Um, and so I asked several Muslims what the cure for sin was in Islam. And I said, will you tell me, what is the cure for sin in Islam? I mean, we do some things that we feel sorry about and we just feel guilt about. And, um, you know, and, and people have lots of regrets and they wish they hadn't. You know, Allah has commands. Uh, the God of the Bible has commands. You know, uh, Yahweh has commands. Um, Old Testament, New Testament, and you Muslims have your commands from it in your Quran and stuff. So what is the cure for sin in Islam? 
And they basically said, well, you got to try harder to do what Allah demands. <laughs> and basically, they, they live and die not knowing if they've done enough good to be accepted by Allah. In fact, Muhammad, it's clear from the Quran, Muhammad didn't know whether he'd done enough that Allah would accept him. Was he obedient enough according to the strict uh, rules of Allah? And, um, of course, Christians know the truth. Our forgiveness is assured not because of what we could ever do, but because of what Jesus has done as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know? And I said, I know you guys reject the cross. I said, but can I tell you why we Christians cherish the cross? You know? And uh, they said, well, sure. And I said, well, you know, every one of your book of Quran surahs, a chapter in the Quran is called a surah, Everyone opens with the plea for Allah to be merciful. But if God just lets guilty sinners, if He shows them mercy without dealing with the sin, either through judgment or through doing something to take care of their sin, then He's not just. So there's a real dilemma there, you know. And, and some of them around the circle were shaking their head. Yeah, I, I can get that. And I said, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, my experience has been that I just can't do enough to satisfy the holy demands of God, you know. So, and I said, can I liken it to a court of law? A judge, let's, let's say that somebody had hurt your family member and you were there to see that they got justice, that they get what they deserve. And I said, what if the judge came in and gaveled things in and then said, I am feeling very merciful today. And some of you have pled for me, the, 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 the perpetrator's family has pled for me to be merciful. Now, I know there's a victim's family here that doesn't want to be merciful, but I feel merciful today, and so I'm going to let this fellow off with no consequence. <laughs> well, in that case, I asked these guys that day, would, would, would that man be, would that judge be just? They'd no. And I said, well, the Bible's very clear, and your Quran is too, that you're, you believe God is just. Allah is just, and the Bible says that Yahweh is just, that our God is just, Christian God is just. And I said, so that's why we cherish the cross so much, because no human could deal with that sin, that crime before God problem. But on the cross, Romans 3 tells us, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The only way we're justified is by the work of Christ on that cross. And the next verses explain that because of the cross, God can be both just and the justifier of the one who believes in Jesus. Just because the penalty for the sin has been dealt with at a very high cost, the love of God Himself sending His Son. But uh, He can also be justifier because the one who receives Christ now has that penalty paid from the one who stepped forward and paid for it for us. And that's where forgiveness of sins come from. Anyway, made them think, and I've actually uh, prayed with a Muslim to receive Christ before after walking through that. So that's kind of cool. Well, this day of Pentecost, the forgiveness for believers, the beautiful message. But then there's the moving and baptism of the Holy Spirit. So you're filling the blank there is the Holy Spirit. And we see this in verses 44 through 47. It says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So here's what you have happen. 
they're turned to Christ, they see this forgiveness of sins, and they have received the Holy Spirit. And uh, so here we see the convicting of the power of the Spirit as He draws people unto salvation. And we see this rare event of speaking in tongues as the Spirit confirmed to these Jewish believers with Peter that these Gentiles were experiencing what they had at Pentecost. And, then, and we see that these new believers have been indwelt by the Spirit. They've received Him. There was a promise back in John chapter 7 where Jesus had told His disciples. He says, He, 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 um, he actually shouted it at uh, the festival, um, the great feast of the tabernacles there in Jerusalem. He shouted out, The one who believes of me, rivers of living water will flow from within him. And they must have asked Jesus about that because John next says in the next verse, John 7, 39, he says, He said this about the Spirit who those who believed in Jesus would later receive. The Spirit had not been given yet because Christ had not been glorified yet. So what a great promise. You receive Jesus, you get the Spirit, right? And Ephesians 1, 13 says, In Him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom when you believed, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And so when a sinner turns to Christ, they get their sins forgiven and they get baptized with the Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, takes up residence in their heart. Everybody that has truly become a believer has been baptized by the Spirit. The Spirit has taken up residence in their heart. That's a spiritual baptism that happens to everyone who believes. As we'll see in a moment, after that you get water baptized as an outward testimony of the inward baptism that's already happened to you as the Spirit has taken up residence in your heart and flushed you of sin. And that's why some of uh, everybody that turns to Christ and really gets saved, they, they have this initial uh, sense of the forgiveness of sins and, and, and they feel clean and the stars seem a little brighter and those things. I believe at that moment of salvation, they just are 100% just flushed of all the sin and there's that great release, you know. And then, of course, uh, we have to make a decision the next day several decisions and we one of them is a sinful decision and we've got something else you know that we need to be flushed of and so we need to continually confess our sin to the Lord and receive his forgiveness uh, but the Holy Spirit never leaves us I liken it to a battery's charge you know uh, when you're saved you're a hundred percent charged up filled with the Holy Spirit and as you sin and don't do your spiritual laundry through spending time in the Bible and prayer the charge gets down to, to about three or four percent now Good cell phones always leave just a little bit if you needed to make an emergency call. And the Holy Spirit never is outside of a true believer, but certainly as we confess our sins and get plugged back into God's Word, the charge goes back up to 100%. So that's what it means to live the Spirit-filled life, filled with Him, flushed of sin. Another way I like to demonstrate that, so sometime get yourself, uh, I don't know if you're all coffee drinkers or not, but uh, if you have some uh, coffee that you were going to throw out, Put it in a clear glass, right? So it's dark in the cup, in the glass. And then put it under the tap and run the tap. And within 60 seconds, it'll be flushed of the coffee and filled with water. And that's an, I, I do that sometimes just to remind me I'm filled with the Spirit. You know, the Spirit's inside. Okay. Well, Peter and his men were astonished that they heard these born-again Gentiles speaking in tongues like at the day of Pentecost back in Acts chapter 2. Now, we have to note here that they did understand what was happening. So we've got another reference of speaking in tongues here. Now, this is the narrative of what happened. And we're trying to figure out what we're supposed to do in the year 2022. 
And there's a section in the Apostles' letters which is doctrinal instruction to us. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 give us everything we want to know about what to do if speaking in tongues is around. Uh, but in Acts chapter 2, here's your true-false question. Or your, uh, here, I'm going to say a statement and you have to say whether it's true or not. In Acts chapter 2, the tongues they heard were known languages that could be understood by the speakers of those languages. True or false? True. That's true, right? Here we are in Acts chapter 10. They understand they're referring to this the same way as back in Acts chapter 2. So there's every reason to believe that these are also known languages. So all of a sudden, they're able to speak Greek or Phoenician or, uh, you know, all their, there's all kinds of language from Acts chapter 2. It's named. And the six Jewish fellows that with Peter said the same thing's happening here that happened back there. So what they're not hearing is one of these uh, heavenly prayer languages that we don't know if that's a thing or not. You know, every world religion has its own version of speaking in tongues that sounds like what happens with the blah, 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 blah. You know, uh, Hindus have their version of that, you know, and other things. Acts 2 and Acts 10, we are told clearly that it was a known language that somebody could understand and receive the gospel, you know. And so we have to factor that into our development about what we do with tongues. We get to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, and clear guidance is given that basically where Paul sums it up by saying, I'd rather you speak five words in church people can understand than 10,000 that they can't. And he said, you know, uh, he actually says in there, unbelievers that come into the church will think you're crazy if you're all just speaking this whatever you're doing and stuff, yeah. And in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, if I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, and that's the only verse that is used to justify that there's some sort of heavenly prayer language that those with a deeper commitment to God get. Uh, so we want to be very suspicious of that, I believe, you know, but, and factor it in with the great advice given in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. It was just like at the day of Pentecost, though. In chapter 11, we'll see that this was going to make a clear point to any Jewish believer that had a problem with Gentiles being saved without being circumcised like the Jews. Um, so the question is, does this passage teach that you're not saved if you don't speak in tongues or that you don't have the Spirit unless you speak in tongues? There are those that say yes, but that would be to rip these verses out of context and to misuse them and violate several basic interpretation principles. I gave you one of them already, that you interpret narrative literature, acts as the record of what happened. When we want to know what to do in the day we're in, we have to get a clear word about it from the instructions of the apostles that are in the rest of the letters and the commentary that's made throughout the New Testament. So John 7, when he said, this he said about the Spirit, he's giving us apostolic commentary on the fact that when Christ rose, from now on, anybody who comes to Christ has received the Spirit, right? If you've come to Christ, you've received the Spirit. Okay, so here's your fill in the blank. Narrative literature likes Acts tells us what happened, but doctrinal passages like the Apostles' letters give us God's final word about matters of belief and practice. Now, in 1 Corinthians 12, we're told that tongues are a gift that some, but not all believers, get. Um... So any Pentecostal friend you have that says tongues is evidence of salvation, 1 Corinthians 12 doesn't allow for that. If they say it's the evidence of you having more of the Spirit than somebody else, 1 Corinthians 12 does not allow that. It says the Spirit distributes the gift 
as He wills. And some get the gift of tongues, but from the book of Acts, it looks like it's a known language. So, Wesley, I'm giving you permission. If you are at the docks of, uh, if you are at the docks of Norfolk within the year, and Russian comes out of your mouth, and you lead a Russian sailor to the Lord, I'm going to bless God for giving you the gift of tongues. Um, but we need to be very suspicious when people say it's a heavenly prayer language uh, and, that it, and that every believer needs to have it or that every believer that's filled with the Spirit will get it. You know? And so what that teaching does is, it's not in the Bible, it's forbidden by 1 Corinthians 12, doctrinal teaching. And what it does is it divides Christians into those who have had the experience of tongues and those who have not and makes those who have not really wish they had it and you have probably had some friends along the way. I certainly have known some people along the way that have looked at you as insufficient as a believer if you did not speak in tongues and said, have you got the gift? Have you got the gift? And what they, I, I talked to a man one time and he was so proud that his son at camp that summer had gotten the gift, gotten his gift of tongues. And with as much humility as I can say, I was a, I knew the young man well enough to know that uh, there was not evidence of being filled with the Spirit and, and walking with the Lord in his life, you know. And so uh, he needed a double dipping <laughs> if, if that was the case. But anyway, um, so there's just some guidance with you on that. So why do we see this Gentile Pentecost here in Acts 10? Uh, I want to tell you that this was probably as much for the Jews that came with Peter Peter and the Jews with him, as well as those they'd report to, as it was for Cornelius and his friends. Because it was probably to demolish the pride, there's you fill in the blank, pride that was about to be displayed by Jewish believers unwilling to fully accept Gentile converts. So if this had not had happened, here's what would have happened. The Jewish believers would have said, Peter, it's great that you went down and met this Cornelius guy. And it's great that they reported to you that their sins had been forgiven. And upon their testimony of faith, it's great that you baptized them. But when this big moment happened to us in Jerusalem, we had this uh, speaking in tongues around at the time. You know, it came and, and uh, you know, nothing like that verified that time. And so we are fully authorized to tell you that they're still missing something, and the thing they're missing is circumcision, right? Um, and so they're going to do that, and it's going to come... It, they're they're, they're going to chase down Gentile believers in other areas and tell them you're not sufficient yet because you, you're not circumcised. So you can't really get in on the things of God until you are. Um, and they're going to have to have a big church meeting about it in Acts 15 with representatives from the churches of the world at that time. They had a big old council, first church council, and we'll get there and see how that was decided. But this needed to happen to demolish any pride that may have been as those folks compared with these folks. Um, and it is humbling, isn't it? You know, one of the reasons why God wants us to meet with other believers from other churches, even other denominations, and other backgrounds is is because, uh, you know, we all have people within our midst that are walking with the Lord and serious enough about their faith to go be missionaries, and we've got folks we send out. We've got different ways of meeting needs. 
And so I'm trying to be very, I'm trying to be very particular here with, um, you know, looking at the text and using other scriptures to evaluate it as we do with narrative and doctrinal literature. But we also want to drop back and say sometimes God lets us interact with believers from other denominations and other countries so we can see, man, they love Jesus as much or more than we do. And, uh, you know, that includes many of our Pentecostal friends and our Presbyterian friends and our Methodist friends, you know, and our Southern Baptist friends and our only independent Baptist friends, you know, and every once in a while a Lutheran gets thrown into the mix or whatever. And we meet others uh, that, uh, you know, are Baptists. Um, some of them can't spell Baptist, but they say they're Baptists. <laughs> Every once in a while I run into somebody and they say they're a faithful Baptist and then they spell out the word Baptist and they put B-A-B, -B, Bab. <laughs> so I was like, maybe you haven't been in a while. <laughs> um, but uh, sometimes we meet Baptists and we go, oh, they don't, they're not really born again. You know, they've got the background, uh, but they are not a credit to the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. They probably need to repent and be saved but they'll tell anybody they're a Baptist the way others would say they're this or that. And so we want to have a biblical faith, a faith focused on Jesus. And uh, next we see here, water baptism follows spiritual baptism. So that's another thing we see from this Gentile Pentecost. Verses 47 and 48 says, Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Now, What's so interesting about this is we do have people in the area that say you're not saved until the moment of baptism. And Catholic doctrine is that when you uh, dedicate the infant and sprinkle the holy water on them that the child is washed, original sin is washed off the child. And that child is guaranteed they'll go to purgatory instead of hell. Um, because they're in with the Catholic system. And nothing in Scripture supports that belief. It's called baptismal regeneration when they say that. Um, because if you get to purgatory, you're eventually going to go to heaven. So baptismal regeneration says that you've got enough in that moment that you won't go to hell in the physical act of washing. There are some Church of Christ folk that teach the same thing. And you've met them. We've got a very zealous group in our area that says uh, no one is saved unless they're baptized. You know, and so they say the moment of salvation wouldn't come until that baptism. And they're doing that probably with a misreading of Acts 2 and some other passages. But note what clearly happens here in Acts 10. Uh, and that is they're clearly saved and Peter says, hey, they're saved. They've got the Holy Spirit inside. Let's baptize them. You know, and so it uh, shows there. Uh, what we see as the unfolding of Jesus' Great Commission, where he says, go make disciples. First person becomes a disciple. They're born again. And then you baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. You teach them to go on and obey all that the Lord has commanded. Well, we've got quite a few things we're looking at in this passage, don't we? But uh, so everyone was excited, right? Man, these Gentiles, Cornelius, it's such a great moment. So many more saved. They all lived happily ever after, right? No, nope, not everyone understood or supported what Peter had done. And so in Acts 11, verses 1 through 18, we see Peter's day of criticism arrives and God's vindication. <laughs> and when we read verses 1 through 3 in chapter 11, you heard me kind of say, <laughs> they were saying, how could you, Peter? <laughs> you visited and ate with lost people. And uh, this really 
helps us understand how big what Peter had done was, What doesn't it? I mean, he wasn't even supposed to eat with them. And uh, he did. He had a pork sandwich with them. You know, he had a barbecue with them. And uh, then he goes on to lead Cornelius to Christ, and they, they just want to criticize this. He hadn't really done anything wrong. Uh, he hadn't really breached Old Testament law, but they'd added so many Jewish customs to the law uh, that were non-biblical that they were judging him based on their extras. And uh, we know that Peter had heard directly from the Lord about it. He testifies to them about that. And he could have responded in anger. Maybe the old Peter would have, you know, uh, get into a fist fight with him or something like that, you know. But uh, instead, uh, he, you know, we know he was prone to anger like that, right? Remember what he did in the Garden of Gethsemane? They tried to take Jesus. What did he do? Got his sword out and cut the guy's ear off, you know. And Jesus put it back on and said, no, no, that's not what we're about, you know. So he could have responded in anger like that, but Peter responds instead with patience and grace. You could put a lot of words there. Patience and grace without backing down from clear biblical revelation. So I like this. In verse 4, he began to explain to them in an orderly sequence. Uh, and we've already read what he explained, how God led him to Cornelius. So we pick it back up in verse 15 where he says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? Um, so as when you are having conflicts with others about cultural preferences, it's good to remember and share the words of the Lord. Um, so remember as you're filling the blank there. And then in verses 16 and 17, as we just read, uh, the, you know, I love Peter's heart there. He said, how could I possibly hinder God? A God thing was happening before my very eyes. I think I've told you all the story before uh, of one of my heroes. His name was Abraham Marshall. His dad, Daniel Marshall, and a man named Shubal Stearns uh, planted the Sandy Creek Baptist Church at the North Carolina-Virginia line area. Um, and over the next 20 years, 40 churches were children or grandchildren of that original church plant. So one grew to 40. And the Sandy Creek Baptist Church near us probably is a grandchild or great-great-grandchild of that church you know, that was there. They saw God do an amazing work. And one of their sons was a man named Abraham Marshall. Abraham took the gospel down into Georgia and led a lot of people to Christ. A lot of the plantation owners allowed him also to preach to uh, the slaves that they owned. And a lot of those slaves were saved. Some of those slaves were called to the ministry and wanted to become pastors. And Abraham Marshall, uh, there in the 1700s, uh, ordained the first ba black Baptist pastor in all of America who planted the first black Baptist church. Um, Later, some white brothers heard what Abraham Marshall had done, and they said, Why did you do that, Abraham? Uh, and he said, The thing wanted doing, so I did it. Peter, why'd you eat with, uh, why'd you eat with Cornelius? Why'd you share the gospel with him? Why'd you, make, why, why'd you let those Gentiles get saved without checking in with us back in Jerusalem for? The thing wanted doing, so I did it, right? I don't have to, you know. John Wesley, the great Methodist, remember him? 
John Wesley in England would go right to the coal mines where the men were getting out of the coal mines and as they were coming out he'd preach Christ to them. Some of them were so moved and getting saved that the tears would put streaks down their blackened faces from being in the coal mines and stuff. When the established Anglican Church heard about what John Wesley was doing, they said, you can't come in and preach in our parish without permission. Those were the days where everybody in the county already belonged to the parish priest, the Anglican priest. That's still happening in the Orthodox countries. It's happening in Russia and Romania and Ukraine and places like that. That's why they're so offended when these evangelicals are popping up, preaching the gospel, people are getting saved, and they're like, you're they, they never did come to our church, but you're taking them there. That's not fair. And he said, well, they weren't going to your church. They weren't going anywhere. They were going to hell. We witnessed to them. They got saved. Now they're excited. Their families are changing, and uh, that's great. But they were doing this with John Wesley. And they said, this isn't your parish. And you know what he said? He said, the world is my parish. A minister of the gospel preaching the word can preach wherever. And uh, we used to joke with a, a church that uh, was winning some people to Christ in our neighborhood where the other church was. Uh, they were bringing in a bus and getting some kids and bringing them over there. Say, listen, that's so awesome that you're reaching kids. We're not reaching. We're co-reaching some of them. You know, that's a partnership and stuff. But it's so great you're reaching them. Hey, if you want to back up your bus in the church parking lot and honk the horn as you're doing it, <laughs> we'll wave at you and glad that you're reaching kids because it's all about reaching people, right? Um, so uh, the following is a prayer I made from this for me. When getting my way on cultural preferences would hinder the work of God and the life of another, may my response always be to yield to God. That's what Peter did, and it's a great inspiration to us. And... Um, what was their response to Peter's heartfelt explanation? Verse 18 says, When they heard these things, they became silent. And they glorified God, saying, Golly! Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. Oh, for more silent meditation and contemplation among God's people. When I was on a mission trip to Romania, I was really impressed. The Christians there, before they come into church, they get right up to the church. These are the Baptist Christians over there. They get right up to the church and they stop and they pray before they go in that they'll hear from God, that they'll worship God, that they'll encourage other brothers and sisters as they're in there. They won't do anything to sin against God while they're among their brothers and sisters. And when they go back out, they'll be on mission with God. Reminds me of Ecclesiastes 5 that says, Guard your steps. Have you ever seen these verses? Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 and 2. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Better to draw near in obedience than to offer the sacrifice as fools do, for they are ignorant and do wrong. Do not be hasty to speak, and do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. So I find much to commend in the way these men handled their disagreement with Peter. They brought their questions to Peter. They questioned him openly. They listened as he shared. That's respectful. They recognized truth when Peter spoke it. And then they did more than admit they were hasty. They were like, not only were we wrong, we should be glorifying God about this. Because what God's done in our hearts, He's done in them now. And obviously this new day has come. Paul's going to write about it in 1 Corinthians. He's going to say, uh, don't, don't uh, break fellowship over somebody over what they eat or don't eat. You know, um, you know, don't don't do that. So it says here they glorified God, saying, "So God has granted repentance even to the Gentiles." 
John MacArthur wrote, This is one of the most shocking admissions in Jewish history, but an event the Old Testament had prophesied. Isaiah 49.6 says, It's not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And that could just be translated a light for the Gentiles because that's the same thing, ethnic nations that aren't Jews. You know, um, before we leave this verse, we're just about done here, but um, we do want to see that what they said is, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. He's let them repent. Or it could be translated, He has gifted them repentance unto life. Many of you, when you've seen Ephesians 2, you've seen in there where it says, For by God's grace you are saved through faith, and that's not of yourself, it's the gift of God. And some careful biblical scholars say, well, that kind of says that faith is a gift from God. This passage says repentance is a gift from God. And so I'm so thankful for the convicting power of the Holy Spirit where He's drawing people unto salvation. And as they are being drawn, all of a sudden faith emerges where faith was not. And repentance emerges where repentance is not. There is a holy mystery. There's a, there's a beautiful mystery when a physical life comes into being. They say that when a con, the moment of conception happens, a spark of light is emitted, which is powerful. I've got, a, uh, I've got a, the, the document on it over in my office uh, that uh, scientists say, uh, and I've actually seen a YouTube video that purported to show that moment where boom, you know, and I don't know how they were able to do that, <laughs> you know, but uh, it, it's powerful. Um, and uh, there's something holy and sacred at that moment of the new birth where all of a sudden God's drawing power comes together with that faith and repentance and new birth happens. Beautiful and powerful. And they recognized that that same cheesy Jesus grin that Peter had on his face was now the cheesy Jesus grin that Cornelius had on his faith and knew that God had, had done it. Um, it also makes me think about how Jesus had given Peter the keys of the kingdom back in Matthew 16 precisely for this moment because he was recognized by Jews, Gentiles, and the authorities as the leader of the early church. And in Acts 8, so this is in Acts 2, right? Peter preaches, 3,000 are saved and baptized. In Acts 8, it was Peter and John that had verified God's working in this, among the Samaritans, that next level of Acts 1-8, and now he's getting to do it with Cornelius and the Gentiles going to the ends of the earth, which is pretty cool. And after this, the gospel never looks back. The very next passage shows the beginning of things going to the ends of the earth as Barnabas brings Saul to Antioch. And uh, as I've said before, 3,000 people are getting saved around the world every hour now. And so we're part of something big and glorious. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.